Welcome to week two of our fall series in the Gospel of John. Uh, earlier in the year, we went through the first five chapters uh, of John. This fall, we'll look at chapters six through ten. And then in the new year, in 2019, we'll, we're going to finish up John's Gospel. Uh, last week, Matthew laid out where we're heading. Our focus over these next few months is how the Gospel of John is, as our subtitle declares, a story of life. A story of life that speaks to our lives, that asks the question of what life really is. And that ultimately points to Jesus as the source and definition of life. I'm sorry if that was a spoiler. But that's what we began considering last week. What is a good life? What does it look like? What does it involve? One of the verses we we looked at was John 1, verse 4, which I've been meditating and ruminating on this past week. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all people. So so what kind of life is in Christ? What kind of life is the light, the hope of all people? What does that look like for us? How does it apply to our lives? That's the journey of exploration we are on this season, and I am glad you're here with us. As we mentioned earlier, there is a reading plan for this series that I hope you'll pick up and use to follow along. I think you may discover that you're learning and understanding even more than you otherwise might if you read and pray and consider Jesus' life during the week as well as on Sundays. And that holds true even when we're not going through one of the Gospels. Uh, We've got a bit of ground to cover today, so I'm going to jump right in. Let me invite you, I I don't remember the last time I said this, but let me invite you to, to open your Bibles or your Bible apps to John 5. And I would really encourage you as we go through this series to bring a Bible if you've got one. And if you haven't, let me or one of the staff know and we'll, we'll get you one. Um, because the thing is, um, you know, I love being able to access my Bible and even my Bible software on my phone. But there is something about seeing your handwritten notes in the margins and remembering where God has brought you through the years and the questions you had, the notions you were so sure of or so uncertain about, the places and ways God answered you. Also, you have no guarantee of knowing that this is actually what the Bible says. (laughs) I could put anything on the screen. I'm just kidding. We wouldn't do that to you. Uh, Matthew gave a recap last week of where we had been, but let me jog your memory. In John 5, which is where we left off in March, six months ago, Jesus healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. Healing, great. But he did it on the Sabbath controversially contravening the religious law and choosing to prioritize a person's life over adherence to the rules, long-standing, fiercely observed rules. As a result, the religious leaders began persecuting him, questioning him, looking for a way to bring him down. And in being pressed, Jesus actually doubled down. He didn't try to exonerate himself. No, no, no. He didn't say, no, no, you're not, you're not understanding what I'm, I'm actually saying. He's saying, yes, I did this on the Sabbath. And then he justified his actions by claiming an intimacy and depth of relationship with God that was considered blasphemous. This, this upstart preacher from backwoods Galilee just claimed to be equal with, one with, God. And when you put that together with the disruption he caused when he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, when he turned over the tables of the money changers, that's in John chapter 2, well, you already know this guy is a troublemaker. Religious or not, we don't tend to like disruptions to our lives or challenges to the way we've done things. It's a little inconvenient, isn't it? Well, that leads us to chapter 6, which we're going to look at today. John 6, 
beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. Now the, f- the first thing to notice is, is how the previous incident affects this one. See, often we'll read the Bible in, in small chunks, in segmented chunks, without any reference to what's gone before or what comes after. But the text says, after this. After this, as in after what had just happened in, the chap- in chapter 5, the opposition, the, the heightened tensions. After Jesus caused a ruckus in Jerusalem, rousing the animosity of the Jewish leaders, he traveled to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We have a map. So Jerusalem is down in the south, way down there at the bottom of the screen, and then way up near the top, and that other little red dot, dot, if you can make it out, is Bethsaida, which is probably where he went, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, almost 100 miles away, because he knew it wasn't his time yet. He had begun to stir the pot, but he knew it wasn't time to die just yet. There were still things he had to do. Jesus knew that by healing a man on the Sabbath, he would be questioned. And he knew that by answering the way he did, he would make mortal enemies of the religious leaders. But he also knew that it would be wise to withdraw in order to fulfill the work God still had for him. See, not every battle needs to be fought right now. Not every conversation needs to be engaged right now. To frame this more broadly, how much do you think about the consequences of your actions? Their impact on others, their impact on the kind of person you're becoming. If you're anything like me, we are far too often far too short-sighted, far too reactive, far too ignorant of how our words or actions or social media posts or texts affect others and how they form us. Jesus knew when to engage, and he did when the time was right, and he knew when to withdraw. Okay, that's the first thing to notice. The second thing I want to point out is that John is explicit in naming the geographical and political context. All right, the Sea of Galilee, it says, was also known as the Sea of Tiberias. I think we have another map, a zoomed-in map of the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias is a city in the southwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, which was named for Tiberius Caesar the head of the Roman Empire, which was occupying Palestine and subjugating the Jewish people at the time. John was reminding his audience that everything Jesus did and was about to do took place in the context of empire. Everything takes place in reality. Right? Our faith is not a disembodied, abstract, ivory tower faith, or at least it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a faith that only shows up for a couple hours on Sunday and a couple hours in the midweek for small group. It takes place and is shown for what it really is in the real world, in your workplaces and in your families here in the capital of the American empire, where we continue to grapple with, among other things, devastating poverty, inequitable systems, and the legacy of a racist history and its continuing impact on the present. That's our reality. See, it can be really easy to detach the stories of Jesus from their very real, very tangible context. But in doing so, I think we dampen the power of the gospel to impact our lives and our world, which may actually make us leave us thinking that the Bible has nothing to say to us today. John was aware of his context. Jesus was aware of his context. May we also 
be aware of our context. What else can we learn from the text? We're still in verse 2. <laughs> we know the people were following Jesus because it says they saw the signs he was doing for the sick. They kept following him. They had heard of him. They knew he was a healer. Uh, there was a palpable excitement in the air, a curiosity. And perhaps it wasn't just curiosity, but for some, maybe it was desperation. Maybe it wasn't just, oh, I'm interested to see what this guy can do. Maybe it was, this, if this man really is a healer, maybe he can heal me. Maybe he can heal my son or daughter. Maybe he can work a miracle in my life. We also know the time was close to Passover, known as the Festival of Freedom, the celebration of the Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt, a time when thoughts of liberation, maybe this time from the Roman occupiers, would be bubbling up once more among the people. Now, all of this forms the backdrop for what we're about to witness in chapter 6. So, verse 5, When he, Jesus, looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they, and they refers to the men here, sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. So as a side note, both Philip and Andrew, as well as Andrew's brother Simon Peter, were from Bethsaida. We learned that earlier in John. And that may have been why Jesus asks Philip what he does. Hey, you're, you're the local kid. You're from here. You know, where, where can we get some food? And by some food, he means enough to feed 5,000 men, including women and children. There may have been up to 15,000 people there, 15,000 hungry people who had just hiked around the Sea of Galilee to see Jesus, 15,000 soon-to-be hangry people. 15,000 people in need. Where, where are we to buy bread enough for these people to eat? It's a question that points me to the world's great need. Richard Rohr says a Christian is one who, along with Jesus, agrees to feel, to suffer the pain of the world. A Christian is one who, along with Jesus, agrees to feel and to suffer the pain of the world. So let's take hunger. For example, in 2016, an estimated 815 million people, almost 10% of the global population, almost three times the U.S. population, suffered from chronic undernourishment. 815 million. Last year, it was reported that one in seven D.C. households, and higher than that in poorer communities, which tend to also be black communities, had enough trouble getting enough food to live healthy lives in our city. Hunger is just one of the issues we could talk about. Right? There are so many needs. We could, we could talk about poverty or foster care or abortion or incarceration or refugees or immigrants or mental health or education. We could be here all day, and at the end of it, the likelihood is that we would feel overwhelmed and powerless. 
815 million undernourished people around the world. One in seven households here in D.C. struggling with food insecurity. Hundreds of kids in the foster care system. One of the highest rates of homelessness in the country. Thousands of migrant children in detention centers. What, what can I do? What, what can one person or even one community do in the face of all these needs? Where are we to buy enough bread to feed all the people? Jesus asked. And perhaps one of the thoughts that went through Philip's head was, back up one second, why is it our responsibility to feed them? They chose to follow you, Jesus. If they didn't pack lunch, that's their problem. But instead, he provides a more diplomatic answer. There's no way we could afford it. And that's true. Philip sees the hard facts, sees the financial realities. And here we are reminded of our great inadequacy. Now, don't get me wrong. Humans are problem solvers. We are an innovative species. In my lifetime, we have gone from dial-up internet to being able to stream movies and live sports on handheld devices. We are capable of great things. (laughs) But we are not gods. Sometimes we can't even get out of our own way. We can't get over our own enmities. We don't deal well with difference. We love control far too much. We care more for the appearance of goodness than for the substance of it. There are things that seem beyond our capabilities. Health problems, accidents or incidents that take loved ones far too early. Or any time we are treated as less than an image bearer of God by someone else and the wounds that result. Those are all real too. Philip was grounded in reality. He was perfectly aware of the need. But for a moment, it seems he forgot who asked him the question in the first place. He forgot who was standing right before him, the miracle-working Messiah. How often do we allow ourselves to get overwhelmed by the situation in front of us, whatever that situation may be, and our seeming inability to change it? How often do we see all of the hard realities, financial, relational, emotional, psychological, the barriers before us, the reasons why it's not going to work or why we shouldn't even try and forget the one who stands before us and beside us and who asks us, knowing his own ability to work wonders, what are we going to do about this? How often in those situations do we say it's not possible? Let me ask you then, as disciples in the line of Philip, what is Jesus asking of you in this situation? Whatever situation comes to mind for you, whatever situation you're facing, what is Jesus asking of you? And how are you responding? Andrew, one of the other disciples, he offers another example of a response. He said, "Uh, there's a boy here. I still remember as a teenager growing up in Hong Kong, my youth pastor telling us that Andrew was her favorite disciple, which was curious because he doesn't get a lot of play. He, he, he didn't write any of the New Testament. He doesn't get mentioned very much. He isn't really known except as Peter's less famous brother. And in fact, often whenever he is mentioned, it's as Simon Peter's brother, as in this case. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, because you wouldn't know who he is otherwise. But when we asked her why, why Andrew was her favorite, she said, because he brought people to Jesus. 
Andrew had been one of John the Baptist's disciples. And when Jesus came along, John, John said, that's the Lamb of God. Go follow him. And, and, and so Andrew did. And then it says, he went and found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Simon to Jesus. He brought Simon to Jesus. Who knows what Peter would be doing if not for his brother Andrew? And then the question for us becomes, well, who are you bringing to Jesus? Who are you pointing to Jesus? Maybe it is a family member or a colleague you need to be praying for or having a conversation with. Maybe it's a friend you can invite to a small group or to a Sunday gathering. Maybe it starts with praying for them and asking God that he might give you the words to say. You don't, you don't have to make them change. You are not responsible for saving them. All we do is introduce people to the source of life. So who are you bringing to Jesus? Andrew brought a boy to Jesus who had five barley loaves and two fish. But he said, you know, what, what are they among so many people? Barley bread was the cheapest kind of bread in that day. It was the food of the very poor. And the word for fish here describes small, salted or pickled fish, like sardines. Less a main course and more like a garnish to help the dry bread go down. And so, rightly, Andrew also notes uh, it's something, but it's not much. Oh, my friends, what God can do with willing people. What God can do with willing people. In another gospel, Jesus would say, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You know, it seems that Jesus never actually has great expectations of our faith. He's surprised when someone actually expresses faith in him. That was the Roman centurion. All Jesus asks for is a little. Andrew brought forward a little boy who brought, who brought a, a little cheap bread and some pickled sardines. A little faith, a little willingness, a little trust, a little imagination. When we talk about big problems, the reality is we cannot do everything. But we can do something. God can do a whole lot with not a lot. God can achieve wonders in and through willing people. Psalm 5 verse 3 in the message reads, Every morning I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and watch for fire to descend one of the prayers I love to start with. Every morning I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and watch for fire to descend. We do what we can. We bring what we can. We say what we can. And God transforms it. Theologian William Barclay wrote, Jesus needs what we can bring him. Jesus needs what we can bring him. It may not be much, but he needs it. It may well be that the world is denied miracle after miracle and triumph after triumph because we will not bring to Jesus what we have and what we are. If we lay ourselves on the altar of his service, there is no saying what he could do with us and through us. We may be sorry and embarrassed that we have not more to bring, and rightly so, but that is no reason for failing to bring what we have. Little is always much in the hands of Christ. Little is always much in the hands of Christ. And so if the previous question was, who are you bringing to Jesus? The next question is, what are you bringing to Jesus? 
What are you offering? Even if it is just a little. We know what happens next. Jesus blesses the food, perhaps praying the blessing that accompanied every meal in a Jewish home. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. And the bread is distributed and everyone, every single one of the hangry people eats their fill. And after all is said and done, somehow the five loaves and the two fish were multiplied and there are leftovers. So what happened? Well, some would say that Jesus, as the God who causes the bread to come forth from the earth, did just that. That the miracle was one of multiplying food, providing sustenance as God provided manna for the people of Israel during the Exodus. It is no doubt a power the devil knew Jesus had when he tempted him to turn stones into bread. Others might say that it's unlikely people would have gone on the nine-mile hike around the coast of the Sea of Galilee, which is what they would have done to follow Jesus, without bringing some food, especially if there were Passover pilgrims among them. But maybe with so many people around them, a scarcity mindset set in, a fear of open-handedness, an anxiety that if they opened up their lunch, they would just be taken advantage of and there wouldn't be any left for them, so everyone just pretended to have forgotten their lunch. But when they saw Jesus being generous with the little food that had been given to him, their hearts were turned to generosity, and they began to bring out their food, and there had been no need to be worried all along. We could, I'm sure, have a long and fascinating conversation about miracles, about what you think about them, about whether you think they're possible, about what you've experienced in your own life. You might find it hard to believe in them and so lean more toward the latter explanation, or you might think it lessens God's power to believe the latter explanation and so lean more toward the for former. It's, it's a bit of an interesting Rorschach test, isn't it? It reveals more about us and our expectations that we're bringing and what we believe about Jesus. And so let me ask you, well, what points you toward Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior, the one in whom we find life? See, if you're disinclined to believe the supernatural, well, the scriptures don't allow you to stay in that place. But if you're disinclined to believe the role and agency of people in accomplishing the mission and work of God, well, the scriptures don't allow you to stay in that place either. Is it a greater miracle that Jesus produced something out of nothing? And I know technically it would be a multiplication of something very little, but that doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. <laughs> or that Jesus changed people's hearts? My answer is yes. I don't feel the need to choose. I think both may have happened. People's hearts were changed and God provided. I think that is the pattern we, I see throughout Scripture and throughout history. God acts and we respond. God acts and we participate. God acts and the little we bring makes a difference. So going back to the text in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is, who is to come into the world. Remember, it was the Passover. People were thinking about deliverance. Jesus had just provided food for them like Moses did, so perhaps they were thinking he would liberate them like Moses had. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let me just say, this is not a savvy marketing strategy. This is not leveraging your popularity. Right? Nowadays, the strategy is getting our name out there. We ride the waves of fame, whatever they are that come our way, and we take whatever press we can get. But Jesus 
unlike us, most of the time knew who he was and would not allow himself to be defined by others' expectations, however great they might be. They wanted to make him king. And the thing is, Jesus is a king, a greater king than the people could even imagine. But his greatness and his kingship is not shaped by our human notions, but by God's. This king's power would be seen in washing his disciples' feet, the task of a slave. This king's authority would be seen in breaking the law to help a person. This king's majesty would be seen in touching the untouchable. This king's glory would be seen in hanging on a cross like a common criminal. But that part of the story is still to come. There's a term I learned in, uh, in preparing for this sermon, and that term is uh, cupboard love. Cupboard love. Anybody familiar with it? That's not surprising because it's a British idiom. And it means a love that is ultimately motivated by greed. An affection that is based on what we can get in return. Some of, that, some of that's in the D.C. air. Right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We network with an eye to getting ourselves somewhere. And in and of itself, this give and take is, we could say, the basis of human interactions throughout history. Right? Maybe this is just a, a modern form of bartering exchange in order to sustain oneself. But that's not how things work with God, as much as we might try to bend him to our purposes and our agenda. The people wanted to make Jesus king. They supported him when he gave them what they wanted. But when he didn't, well, that's another story for another day. But it's also our story in our day, isn't it? If we're being honest, how much could we say we love Jesus for what we can get from him? James 1 verse 17 tells us every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. But if we're not careful, we'll learn to love the gift more than we love the giver. William Barclay again poses this convicting question. When we appeal to Christ, is it for strength to go on with our own schemes and ideas? Or is it for humility and obedience to accept his plans and wishes? When we appeal to Christ, when we pray, is it for strength to go on with our own schemes and ideas? Or is it for humility and obedience to accept his plans and wishes? So, what is Jesus to you? What is Jesus to you? Vending machine? Prayer goes in, blessing comes out. Santa? You better watch out. Better not pout, he's keeping a list. A judge waiting to smite you down at the first sign of trouble or to forever assign your value to the worst thing you've ever done? Or do you know Jesus as a friend to be listened to and talked to and partnered with or as a teacher to learn from and to follow or as a savior to live thankfully and graciously in response to or as Lord and King to be obeyed and submitted to. What is Jesus to you? We have one final incident to cover today. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples 
went down to the sea, they got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. They may have thought he, he'd gone on ahead. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Strong winds were were common on the Sea of Galilee, and these men, many of them fishermen by trade, were used to such weather. They knew what they needed to do. You know, tie up the sail and pull out the oars, find your bearings and row. Just let's do this. In rough weather, it might have taken them over an hour to row three or four miles on their way to Capernaum. You can pull up the, next, the map. It's not a far distance on the map. But the Seda is there in the top in Capernaum. They just kind of bypassed the hike. They ended up probably doing more work. But they would have been tired. Battling the waves, desperate to make it to land. Maybe, maybe even some fear and uncertainty began to creep in. What if we don't make it this time? And then Jesus walks by, out on an evening stroll, on the water. And the text says, and they were terrified, because who wouldn't be if you saw someone walking on the water? He may have caused them greater initial anxiety. See, they weren't terrified until they saw him walking on the water. But he said, it's me. Don't be afraid. Jesus saw their distress and their difficulty, and he came to them, came to be with them. It's me. Don't be afraid. And immediately they arrived where they had wanted to go. Maybe they they had been closer to shore than they had thought. But in Psalm 107, it speaks of God bringing sailors to their desired haven. God gets them safely where they need to go. Jesus, God incarnate, does the same for his disciples. And he does the same for us. He draws near to us in the distress and difficulty of life, of our lives. He comes to us, comes to be with us and says, it's me. Don't be afraid. So where do you need to know the presence and reassurance of Jesus? Where do you need to be reminded that Jesus sees your distress, that Jesus is with you in your distress, that Jesus will help you get where you need to go, that Jesus will bring you to your desired haven? These two stories held together tell us of a Christ who cares for every part of our lives. He cares that people have something to eat. He cares that people know not to fear. He cares for our bodies and our souls. The physical, the material, is not all that matters, but it does matter. The work of justice, of caring for those in need and addressing the systems that led to those needs matters. And the work of evangelism, of sharing the good news of life in Christ with anyone who will hear it, matters. God's action matters, and so does our participation. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. I don't know where every single person here is on your journey right now. But I do know that Jesus, in Jesus, is life. And that life is the light of all people. 
Every single person, every single one of us, whether we are hangry or hurting, lonely or lost, disappointed, defeated or distressed, suffering, selfish or sinful, maybe you stand in the line of Philip and Jesus is asking something of you. He's asking you to respond to a particular situation in your life or in the world. What will you do? Maybe you stand in the line of Andrew. Jesus is asking you to bring someone to him, to introduce someone to him. What will you do? Maybe you stand in the line of the boy, and Jesus is asking what you've got to give, even if it's a little bit, for the glory of God and for the sake of the world. What will you do? Maybe you stand in the line of the crowd and Jesus is asking you quite pointedly, who am I to you? Or maybe like the disciples in the boat, you are struggling and straining against winds that are battering you and you need the presence and reassurance of Jesus. You need the one who brings life to be present with you, to comfort you, to remind you that there is no need to be afraid. Maybe it's all of them. Whoever you identify with, wherever you are on your journey of faith, the invitation of Jesus is to life in him, to trust in him, to trust him, to trust that he is who he says he is and what he says is true. Maybe you've never fully trusted him. You may have held back or you may actually never have heard the promises of Christ, not just for life after death, but for life before death too. Maybe you need to trust him again. You, you may have walked away for a while. Maybe you were burned by the church or by people who claimed to follow Jesus. But he is trustworthy even when we are not. Maybe there's a particular situation that you're facing where you feel helpless or overwhelmed. And if you're being honest, you haven't invited Jesus into it because you've been trying to do everything within your power to handle it. And it is good not to not just sit on your hands, but I think it would be better to see what God's presence brings with it. In just a moment, we're going to respond by taking communion together as we do every week. We'll give you the bread, which represents Jesus' body that was broken so that we might be made whole. And you'll dip it into the juice, which represents Jesus' blood that was shed so that we might be washed clean. We have a gluten-free option off to my right. I'm not going to draw an analogy for that. You know, interestingly, uh, John doesn't include the Last Supper in his gospel. doesn't have that account. Instead, he has Jesus as the host of a meal with thousands of people where he breaks bread and distributes it among them and everyone had their fill and there was plenty left over. And he has Jesus as the host of a wedding banquet in John 2, where he makes wine that is better and more abundant than anyone has ever tasted. Jesus is the host of this meal, as he is the host of every moment in life, inviting us to partake of life in him and life through him and to participate in life with him, all the while saying, it's me, don't be afraid. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, Lord of life. We bring our lives to you. We bring all of our lives to you, every part of it. In you is life, and that life is light for me and everyone else in this room and everyone who's not in this room. And so, Lord, we come, um, we come to your table. We come to receive the sacrifice that you made that, to remind us of the life that is available in you, through you, with you. God, we want, Jesus, we want your life in us. We want your life in our life. We want more life. Tired of being tired. Tired of being disappointed and, and hurt and overwhelmed. We want your life. We need your life. And so by the power of your spirit, would you meet us where we are with what we need? And God, that even as we take these physical, tangible, material reminders of the bread and the juice, Lord, would you be nourishing us spiritually and emotionally, relationally? We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a part of, of chapter 6 that I didn't mention. It's sort of like a biblical Easter egg. Where Jesus, he said, he ma he said make the people sit down. And, and John writes, now there was a great deal of grass in that place. And now we, we might just think, well, that just means there was a lot of space because there was, you know, 15,000 of them. But I think what he's doing is actually harking back to Psalm 23. I'm going, to, I'm going to read to close because it's been one of our themes for today and I think it encapsulates both of the stories today. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures where there is a lot of grass. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley or I'm rowing in a storm, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. May we know this blessing. May we know this presence. May we know this power at work in our lives. In the name of the one in whom is life. And that life is the light of all people. Together we said amen.